The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. ESG has become established as a key business theme as companies and investors seek to navigate the climate crisis, energy transition, social megatrends, mounting regulatory attention, and pressure from other stakeholders. The rapidly evolving landscape has become inundated with acronyms, buzzwords, and lingo, and we aim to break these down with industry experts. Welcome to ESG Currents, brought to you by Bloomberg Intelligence, your guide to navigating the evolving ESG space, one topic at a time. I'm Eric Kane, Director of ESG Research for Bloomberg Intelligence, and I'm your host for today's episode. Today, we're talking about water with Sarah Walker, who is the Director of Corporate Water Engagement in the Water Program at the World Resources Institute, otherwise known as WRI. Sarah, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. So for our listeners who may be less familiar with WRI and the water program, I want to start with an overview of the organization and kind of the focus of the water program specifically. Yeah, sure. Well, WRI is a global research organization, and we work at the intersection of development and the environment. Um, And we really aim to make sure people's needs are met while also protecting nature and combating climate change. Um, So we're really trying to address systemic problems with the way we produce food, we manage our land and water, generate energy, and design our cities. Um, And we have nearly 2,000 people around the world um, in various countries trying to make this happen. Within our water work, we're primarily focused on helping companies Um, communities and governments understand their water risks and invest in solutions for a water secure future. Excellent. And I I saw that uh, WRI recently uh, published an update to its aqueduct uh, report, aqueduct 4.0, and there were some 
pretty alarming statistics, of course, included in that. Um, one of which is that you know today about 3.6 billion people have inadequate access to water uh, at least one month a year, and you're predicting uh, that number to increase uh, quite a bit to to more than 5 billion uh, by by 2050. So curious to hear kind of ultimately how you're looking to to solve uh, this problem through through corporate engagement. Yeah, the statistics are um, are quite dire, and we're I think we're fortunate to work with a lot of really innovative and ambitious um, companies. So um, my work is primarily with with the private sector on corporate water stewardship, and Aqueduct does serve as a foundation for a lot of that work. It was created about ten years ago, um, and it's an open access. Um, tool for providing peer-reviewed data on current and future water risks, including water stress, floods, droughts. Um, and like you said, our, our latest update, Aqueduct 4.0, um, just come out, came out in August. And um, we have chronic um, trends on water uh, stress globally and, and other water risks. And we also have now in this new update, new future projections on water stress, water demand, water supply uh, out to 2080 in the tool. And that's based on the latest and greatest climate data. So many in the private sector use this tool to get a handle on where the risks are greatest um, across their portfolio. Um, so particularly these multinational companies with locations all over the world, it's a really useful screening tool to kind of look across all of your operations, even in your value chain as well, um, to identify those hotspots um, and, and then do some further um, digging to understand you know, what's happening on the ground and, and what kind of steps can be taken. So we provide this tool, we help companies understand these water risks. Um, and then we do other work with companies that kind of builds on that. So with that information, how do you then set targets that mitigate those risks, that make sure that you're doing your part um, to solve these water challenges? So a lot of our work recently has been um, on setting meaningful water targets. Um, and there's a variety of options um, and, and more entering the scene every day, it seems. So you, you mentioned the idea of water targets. I think for those of us in the, the ESG space, there's been uh, so much focus, of course, in recent years on climate targets, carbon reduction targets in particular. Uh, we certainly see more and more companies announcing uh, water targets, but I think it's still um, a much smaller number than we see with respect to, to carbon and, and climate directly. So curious, as to kind of your thoughts on on why perhaps this issue has not reached that same level uh, of attention that we see with greenhouse gas emissions, even though you know as the stats suggest, it's equally as as dire and obviously certainly related to the the overall climate picture. Yeah, great question. Um, so water is is tricky um, when you compare it to to climate, in particular. You know there can carbon emissions have global implications. Right, doesn't matter where they come from. You know, it's it's impacting the globe. Water is very local, and so if you reduce water in one area, it's not going to benefit a, another area. 
And so that's why it's been so tricky to kind of rally behind a, a global ambition on water. And it does really just come down to local conditions in, in basins. So we've worked with some partners to develop guidance on how to think about the local context when setting targets, um, for setting site-based targets, enterprise-wide targets for companies, um, where they can kind of factor in water risks in every basin where they have activities. You know, what's the current condition in that basin? What's the desired condition? And what's that change that's needed um, to solve shared water challenges in those basins? And then you layer in the, the company's footprint. You know, what's, um, how are they contributing to these challenges? How can they be contributing to solving them? You know, what, um, what's the proper level of ambition? Um, for them to help meet desired conditions. So we've been doing a lot of thinking around that and a lot of work with companies to, to kind of understand that. And it does make for, you know, it's not just one target. It's a lot of targets in some cases if, if there are a lot of areas where, where companies have activities. Um, and then it can roll up into, you know, an overall corporate ambition. And that's just one way of going about it. Other companies are setting replenishment targets. So um, committing to replenishing the volume of water that they consume, for example, as a way to kind of offset their impact. We're also involved in the science-based target network. So following in the footsteps of the science-based target initiative for climate, but thinking about how to set targets then for all of nature, including water. Um, and that follows a similar approach to, to understanding, you know, what are sustainable thresholds in every basin um, and calculating targets for companies according to those uh, and their and their footprints. Um, so there's a lot of activity, a lot of excitement, a lot of interest in um, in setting targets, I would say, broadly in, in the private sector right now. That's really interesting. A couple of things to, to follow up on there. So you mentioned, of course, you know, that, that water is, is local. Um, as opposed to you know carbon, which is more global, which is uh, obviously I think key to to the issue. And then you mentioned, of course, that targets have to be kind of specific to a given basin. So I think therein lies another key difference between greenhouse gas emission target setting and water setting, right? Because we can kind of align or at least try to align our carbon targets to a certain degree of of warming, which is by and large, you know, global. Whereas, you know, with, with water, um, it, it could be basin specific. So again, I'm kind of curious to hear ultimately how you kind of measure at a basin level what that threshold should be or, or what you ultimately measure a target against. Yeah, it's um, it can be challenging depending on data availability. Mm. Tools like Aqueduct use um, global hydrologic models, um, which are good, like I said, at that high level, um, for those high level screening purposes. And they can be used um, to set um, targets as well. If you wanna think about risk thresholds that you're comfortable with, um, you could use tools like Aqueduct um, to set targets that way. Um, you could also pull in more local models and data sets that might have a better handle on what's happening on the ground. Some areas um, have a lot of great data and models. Um, so a lot of my, my work in the past has been focused on the Chesapeake Bay here in the United States, and it's very data rich, great 
you know, watershed model that we can rely on um, tells us those sustainability thresholds. And in many other areas, that doesn't exist. Um, and so you do kind of have to fall back on those global data sets in some cases. And this is something we're trying to uh, move forward through the science-based target network because we, we do really want to encourage those local sustainability thresholds to be used. Um, so we're trying to identify where they exist and where they don't. And, um, and it's, yeah, it is unfortunately um, often the case that there aren't great local data we can rely on. That's, that's interesting. Obviously, the, the lack of data remains a, a key challenge uh, across ESG. And I, I certainly think uh, for assessing water, um, that lack of data is, is, is pretty pronounced. Um, you mentioned earlier the idea of ambition, corporate ambition, with respect to you know, decreasing water use and, and setting targets, uh, not to keep drawing parallels to, to carbon targets, but uh, perhaps I'll do it one more time. One of the, the things, of course, that we see when we're looking at carbon targets, and I think with water targets too, is companies often have pretty ambitious targets, but we don't, as investors or, or analysts, necessarily have the tools to understand whether these targets are feasible or whether the plan to uh, achieve the target is is feasible. Uh, so just curious to hear your thoughts on that and ultimately you know, how you're assessing kind of the quality uh, or um, validity of, of a target. Yeah, this is another excellent question, Eric. A um, couple of things to, to share on this point. We actually were on a call the other day with a company and they asked essentially that same question. You know, if, if, if we go and set this target based on what the watersheds need, how do we know that it's even feasible for us to achieve? Um, I think some companies do take a more conservative approach and, and factor in that achievability factor so they can ensure that what they're committing to is, is ultimately something that, um, that they can pull off. And others that we work with really stick their necks out and say, we know this is what needs to happen. We're going to commit to doing our part, you know, to achieve these desired conditions, these sustainability goals. And we'll figure out how to make that happen later. But this is what has to happen and, and we'll find a way, um, or at least we'll do our best to find a way. So there are different, you know, levels of tolerance um, for setting these targets and, and different levels of ambition. So we, we see a variety of, of approaches there. Um, WRI has been involved in that accounting picture um, and, and developing guidance on how to account for progress toward targets. Um, so when thinking about volumetric targets, we have guidance on volumetric water benefit accounting. So as, as um, projects are invested in that help replenish water, for example, um, we help provide methodologies for, for quantifying those benefits and, and reporting up to the targets. We're working on similar guidance now for water quality with a number of partners. Um, and then <clears throat> we're also expanding upon those quantification methods to provide some more guidance on that transparency picture in a way, the, the reporting, how often do you need to make sure those projects are on the ground? Um, what kind of claims can you make um, 
about your progress and um, and things like that. So we're doing that together with a number of partners. We have a number of companies involved as well. So hoping that this will really um, provide some of that much needed guidance across um, across the private sector on on the accounting and the claims piece. That's yeah, that's super interesting. Obviously, uh, one of the big kind of focal points in the ESG space these days is around uh, transparency and disclosure and reporting standards. So just to kind of expand on that, how does your work fit in with some of the kind of global frameworks that are out there, whether it's the work that uh, ISSB is doing, for example, or, or GRI, are you collaborating, coordinating with those groups or are your accounting standards uh, kind of something separate at this point? Yeah, the, the accounting standards that I just mentioned are a bit separate. Um, those are more around accounting against targets, but we certainly are plugged in with um, ESG reporting. Um, you know, companies use Aqueduct, for example, to report to CDP, um, and we're trying to monitor, you know, all these other um, acronyms that are out there for, for ESG reporting um, and and making sure that our tools and our data and our guidance can continue to be useful. Great. So maybe I'll just take a opportunity to read a, another stat from uh, the recent Aqueduct report. And, and this one is equally alarming uh, and, and leads to my, my next question. But uh, so according to, to your recent research, about 70 trillion dollars in GDP, 31% of global GDP, will be exposed to high water stress by 2050, up from about 15 trillion or 24% of global global GDP in 2010. So obviously a pretty significant stat, pretty alarming stat. With that as the, the context, seems to me that investors are still not really paying attention to water as much as they should. So want to hear your thoughts on ultimately, you know, how through your work uh, and and others, we can better help the market really understand these risks and um, ultimately, you know, how to incorporate these risks into investment decisions. Yeah, um, certainly the, the ESG reporting is helpful as, you know, a, a basic understanding of um, of the risks that companies are exposed to. Um, <clears throat> and you're right, there's there's a lot more action I think that's needed. Um, a lot of, I think, understanding that is hard to, to get at due to lack of data in some cases and lack of reporting. Um, and I think it's, it's fair for investors to start expecting and, and asking companies to respond to these risks um, and to be adapting accordingly. Um, we can't continue down this business as usual path. Um, you know, we're already seeing um, stranded assets and there's all kinds of, you know, increasing threats from climate change that's only going to kind of exacerbate this issue. So using tools that are out there from ESG reporting, Aqueduct to kind of get a handle on um, as much publicly available data as possible, but also expecting more from companies on, on disclosure um, about their activities, their locations, their risks, I think would, would go a long way. Absolutely. That makes sense. 
I think one of the, the challenges, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, goes back to something that, that you mentioned before, which again is the idea that water is local. Uh, so the challenge there, you know, versus other environmental issues, whether it be air pollution or, or GHG emissions, is I think it's it's harder ultimately to kind of put a price on water that is, uh, you know, perhaps applicable uh, kind of a, a, across a market, um, as opposed to, you know, greenhouse gas emissions trading markets that we see in, in various regions, um, you know, other air pollutant trading markets. Has there ever been kind of any discussions of a global water market, global water taxes, anything like that? Yeah, again, it's tricky because um, water isn't a global issue. Water challenges don't have you know global reach. There are certainly some geographies that have tried or, or do have water markets, um, both for quantity and for quality. Um, I used to be involved more in the water quality markets where we had a similar kind of um, market as, as carbon, but for um, nitrogen phosphorus credits. So I mentioned the Chesapeake Bay earlier and, and there's a cap there on nutrients in for the Chesapeake Bay watershed. So any additional growth, you know, new new companies coming into operation in the watershed, all of the nutrient load associated with their activities have to be offset. And, and so there has been development there for water quality market um, and similarly in other places for water quantity. But again, it, it is just, it's very local um, and that makes it challenging. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of the, the local nature, I was uh, reading a, an interesting article on, on the water challenges that we face in preparation for this discussion. And one of the terms which, which I had not heard before that was used in the article is this idea of virtual water, which is water that is essentially embedded in other products, whether it be agricultural products, whether it be oil, for example. And these things, of course, are being traded you know, globally moving around uh, various markets and, and, you know, based on what I was reading is it's, you know, an overwhelming percentage of, of water is ultimately kind of virtual water, if you will. Um, so I was wondering if, if, you know, given that there's any potential for thinking about you know, similar to like a, a carbon import tax or something like that, where you can try to account for the water used in a product as part of, uh, you know, other global trade mechanisms in a way to, again, try to encourage efficiency and, and reduction and in, in ultimate use of, of this valuable resource. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea. This virtual water concept is um, is challenging for a number of reasons. And it's something that we're grappling with um, in thinking about, particularly in areas where this virtual water is originating from water scarce geographies and then being exported to areas that, that have plentiful water. Um, and there are equity concerns with that. And if you, um, you know, local economies are benefiting from these exports, but is it the most equitable approach? Um, so we, I don't know that we have solutions 
<laughs> right now, but we are thinking about it. And this is one of those, you know, I mentioned in, in the beginning about WRI, like we are really trying to tackle these systemic challenges. And this is this is a big one um, that that we're continuing to uh, to think about and making sure that we're using our water resources appropriately and um, and compensating for it appropriately. Absolutely. Another thing that I was thinking about the other day that I wanted to get your thoughts on is it seems like so many of the solutions to various global problems um, ultimately kind of contribute to, to other problems. So to actually explain what I mean, when we think about something like uh, EVs or, um, you know, wires necessary to transport electricity, um, we see increased demand for copper, for example. Copper's super water intensive um, to create. So how do you kind of address this this concept of um, solutions to one issue ultimately contributing to perhaps, you know, more water use um, in this example? Yeah, um, great example. Just before um, talking to you, I was in a meeting with some other WI colleagues about um, energy minerals, um, including copper, and how all of us across the Institute who are working in different sectors on different issues can really come together and try to tackle this. Um, it's a big one and one that we've been in the water team um, have been thinking a lot about recently as we do see this increase in electric vehicles, like you mentioned, um, more renewable energy, all these things are critical to solve the climate crisis. And there are water ramifications um, to the mining of these, um, of these important critical minerals, both from a water quantity standpoint and from a water quality standpoint. Um, and we've seen a lot of interest over the past few years um, from companies and, and awareness about water risks, not just in their direct operations, but across their whole value chain. And so particularly for these companies that rely on these minerals upstream in their supply chain, which could be you know, the automotive sector for the lithium and um, electric vehicle batteries, renewable energy sector, the tech sector making cell phones, you know, also relying on, on these minerals for batteries, for example, um, we need to get a better handle on those impacts and and how to mitigate those um, through you know more responsible mining and recycling and you know the, the whole um, range of possibilities. So it's encouraging that we're seeing this interest in understanding risks across the value chain. You know, not just focused on direct operations, but um, <clears throat> impacts upstream as well, but the data aren't always there to um, to provide good good guidance. Um, so it's something that that we're keen to explore here in the near future. Absolutely, that sounds good. Um, so you mentioned the idea of you know exploring uh, things in in the near future. Wanted to maybe close with a question around your plans going forward and kind of where you see WRI's uh, water work, um, you know, focusing over the next year um, and ultimately where you might see some uh, some cause for optimism, because I think we 
had a little bit of a pessimistic conversation here. Obviously, <laughs> it's, a, it's a concerning situation, uh, but maybe we could get your your thoughts on on those two things to close. Yeah, sure. I know these these conversations tend to be uh, a bit depressing, so I'll, I'll do my best here. Um, so we're we're seeing just you know increased complications across these issues based on the interconnectedness, you know, the trade offs like we were just talking about. Um, and then some of these issues only being exacerbated with climate change and economic development. And so we're really striving at WRI to take um, a more holistic approach to these issues. And um, we have a new strategy that's that's trying to look across um, all these systemic challenges to um, and then organize ourselves accordingly uh, internally to try to generate benefits, you know, across multiple um, areas. And of course, to do that, we need a lot more people at the table. Um, and this takes, you know, not just NGOs and companies, but many others, you know, no company, no sector is going to solve any of these problems. We need government as well involved. We need civil society. Um, you know, we need everyone at the table to engage on these issues, to agree on a common vision um, and how to get there and, and everyone involved in, in making that happen. So that then, given the nature of water, requires more kind of place-based work. Um, we got to bring everyone to the table, you know, in all these areas where, where we're seeing um, significant water risks. So WI is, is when I first started 14 years ago, um, we just had an office in D.C., um, and we now have offices all over the world. We are deepening our engagement in focus countries to really target those high priority areas um, and really try to increase our, our impact on the ground. So we've been making this transition over many years um, from my perspective as being a very research focused think tank to more of, of a do tank um, because we recognize that it's going to take more than research to, to solve these problems. So I'm encouraged by where we're headed um, and I'm seeing not just from within WRI, but externally a lot more focus on collective action and how we bring everyone together. Um, and this is, and maybe this is just because I'm from where I sit, I work with the private sector, but you know, they're in many cases, the ones pushing it. They realize they're not going to solve it alone. They want governments involved. Um, and so I'm hopeful that we may start to see some more collaboration and um, and collective action to solve these very challenging systemic problems. Absolutely. Very interesting. Thank you. I really like the idea of uh, transforming from a research think tank to a, a do tank. Uh, I like that a lot. So I uh, just wanted to remind our, our listeners, we were joined today by uh, Sarah Walker, who's the Director of Corporate Water Engagement in the Water Program at the World Resources Institute. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for having me. So you can find more information on ESG data, reporting, all things water, by going to the environmental tab on the ESG team dashboard, BI space ESG Go on the Bloomberg terminal. If you have an ESG quandary or burning question you would like to ask BI's expert analysts, send us an email at esgcurrents at bloomberg.net. 
thank you again for listening and we'll speak to you next time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than a destination. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher-level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.